You know, it's interesting, the life lessons that we learn. There are some very significant points, I think, that each of us learn from different sources in our lives. Some people seek their wisdom from gurus and books on philosophy. But my greatest lessons were learned through my paternal grandparents, and as I lovingly call them, my Bubby and my Zadie. I learned the feeling of peace while sitting next to my grandfather in the synagogue with his prayer shawl wrapped around my shoulder and what it felt like to feel peace from a peace-loving man. And I learned about love, unconditional love, from my grandmother. And every time, as a new leaf was born on a plant, she would lovingly take a pl plain, clean piece of cheesecloth wrapped in, in, in water and place it over the leaf and tell me how it was like a new birth and how lovingly we had to nurture each new leaf like a child being born. And when I went through my own healing process, when they told me I would never be able to bear a child, and I had to seek out other means, I learned about healing. And then in the 1980s, I came across a book, a book that had a very significant impact on my life. And I've bought several copies of that book and given it to many different people. And finally, a few years ago, my son, who is now a teenager, bought me another copy of that book and signed it and said, I know you won't give this one away because it's from me. That book is Love, Medicine, and Miracles. It was written by Dr. Bernie Siegel. Dr. Bernie Siegel has written several books on peace, love, and healing, how to live between office visits. He's a retired physician, but he goes around the world and around the country impacting people's lives, and it's my pleasure to have this conversation with him today. So, Dr. Siegel, welcome. I've waited a number of years to say that. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. But, you know, after listening to the introduction, I can say that that's because you agree with me, um, meaning it in this sense that uh, Sir Ash Ashley Montague, who's a famous anthropologist, came up to me uh, when we were having lunch one day after I had spoken. He said, that was one of the finest talks I've ever heard. But mm. he said, you have to understand it's because I agree with you. Absolutely. So I, I, but I really think that the lessons, uh, well, I've learned the lessons from my mortality and the mortality of others, that I always say enlightenment is not difficult to come by when you learn you have six to 12 months to live. It's very simple then to make a list about what's important. And the sad part is that most people don't accept their mortality and so don't find enlightenment and don't look at their lives. And then when something happens, they go on a program or they write a book about it, mm -hmm. and I keep saying to them, the books have already been written. See, mm -hmm. I, I can say to anybody listening right now that we have absolutely nothing new to tell them. <laughs> it's been written thousands of years ago. All you have to do is look at the great spiritual books that are written. Right. Um, and I use the word spiritual. Religions kind of mess things up because people come along and make rules and create problems. And guilt. Yeah, but if you look at what the great, you know, enlightened individuals uh, have said over the centuries, you say, oh, that's what Siegel said. Now, I may say it in a little different way, because I wasn't born 2,000 years ago, uh, but 
and I think that may be a reason to have this program and to write a book, is to update it, make it clear to people. But that if people would read and listen to what has been said and what has been written, they will find there are many resources for them when they run into difficulties. It interests me because your background is as a scientist, uh, as a conservative physician and surgeon, and I'm curious to see what brought you from that aspect of medicine and healing to where you are today. Well, I have to say two things, that, and I think it's really important that people pay attention to your introduction, that I say to people at workshop, what models do you live or die by? that we forget that our parents, teachers, and religions either teach us about survival or teach us how to not survive. So most of us grow up with negative messages that are destructive, and our parents are very hypnotic. You know, you hear for the first 10 or 15 years of your life some of these messages, and every time you run into difficulties, you respond as to, you know, their direction. Right, the programming. Uh, yeah, that you and I grew up also with parents who were very positive and therapeutic. I mean, they loved me, and they helped me understand that adversity and difficulties were redirections. Right. Like you, I had a God who didn't punish me, right. but, you know, I could be comfortable with, talk to. As a matter of fact, my mother was always saying, uh, it was meant to be God is redirecting you. So every right. time something came wrong in my life, by my definition... I would talk to God about it. Right. And as a kid, I literally would sit in my bedroom talking to God. So, you know, but, and then that phase sort of disappeared, you know, when you get to be an adolescent, and as an adult, came back to me. So I think that was one aspect, that my greatest teachers were the people I grew up with, and they were good teachers. The second group of teachers were my patients, that we started groups to help people live with their trouble. Right. Um, I didn't this as a way of curing them. I thought, well, it'll help them live longer if they straighten their lives out and so forth, but that this wasn't anything, you know, magical, but we could come together, and I didn't have to feel like a failure as a doctor, not curing diseases. I'll help you live. What I saw, and again, as a scientist observing this, was that people learned they were mortal, and then they straightened out relationships, quit jobs. Well, to quote one lady, cancer gave me permission. Well, what do you have permission to do? Literally, to take a tie off and cancel a dress code at work, to buy a new house, to move across the country, to, you know, break up a marriage that was killing you, to quit a job you hated. Now, you know, all these people say I was exhausted. When you meet them later, you find they're doing six times as much as they did when they said they were exhausted. But now they're doing what they love to do. And a byproduct was, hey, I didn't die. Hey, the doctor said, but it didn't happen. And I realized that loving life and the joy and so forth was physiologic. So I began to write and talk about it. And I was just saying to somebody, you know, we started these groups in 78. Mm. There are a lot of people who don't even cite me now when they write articles. I mean, I read the article. I say, hey, they're saying everything I said. They left my name out. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like writing a letter to the editor. But it's like another generation has come along, right. has accepted everything I said, because now it's very scientific and the research supports it, and they forget that I was out there being a radical on all kinds of programs with everybody sure. yelling at me about all the trouble I was causing um, and what I was saying, and now I don't get invited. Well, I'm invited now, you see, to be listened to. 
you didn't invite another doctor or an attorney or somebody to yell at me and say, you're crazy, you're nuts, you're making people feel guilty if they don't get better. But so I, you I know, think that has been clarified. I think any of us who have gone through a healing process uh, understands that even, even when you were an innovator back in the 70s and 80s, those of us who have been through that process were shaking our heads and nodding in agreement that's, and saying, right. yes. I mean, that's the difference. See, I could say that doctors aren't natives. They haven't been through the process. So they are looking at it from the standpoint of their inadequate training. And that's a point I also think is important to make, that, you know, as a physician, I was not trained to take care of people. I was trained to treat disease. So right. I really am very unhappy with medical education which then create doctors that we become unhappy with. It seems that for a long time, doctors went through a period where they almost became desensitized. Desen oh, I think that's still true. I, I would say that yeah. we're, most physicians are suffering post-traumatic stress disorder because we don't know what to do with our feelings at all. And, and they don't want to listen to patients. Mm -hmm. right. If you were to fill an entire auditorium just with physicians, right. what would you tell them? Oh, I would talk to them about their own wounds and to share their wounds. I wrote an article for American College of Surgeons, Bulletin, and I say that's one of the few organizations that asked me to write because most don't want to write back to me. <laughs> but I said to them, that this pledge that surgeons take is, I will, part of it is, I will deal with my patients as I would wish to be dealt with if I were in the patient's position. <laughs> and I said... I don't like that language. Why don't you say, I will care for my patients, not I will deal with them? And they wrote and asked me if I wanted to write an article, and I did. And it basically was, number one, to deal with your wounds. As Thornton Wilder said, in love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. So share your wounds with your patients. Become more sensitive, not less. Uh, you know, to see your patients as a resource, to understand that you're there to help them live can't cure every disease, but if you help people live, you may be amazed at how many diseases are cured as a byproduct. And as I say, it went on to share those experiences and points with them, because if we build a wall, we die. Now, you have to understand this, because I painted a portrait of myself almost 20 years ago as a surgeon. Now, remember, if I say to you I painted a portrait, you'd expect to see a face, but I have a cap, a mask, and a gown on. You don't even know who it is if I showed you the painting. So you you but didn't... See, I was in pain, too. You and, were. Yeah, and, and that the mask, the wall, is because we're human, but we don't know what to do with our pain. That's true of most people. That, uh, you know, how are you? Fine. What's right. wrong? Nothing. Here's a pill. Distract yourself. And the truth is, go into the pain. Use it. Learn from it. Um, as a therapist said, if you take charcoal and compress it, you end up with a diamond. So I meet people who say a disease is a gift. I mean, there's a young man who died of AIDS who wrote something incredible. He said, what may be evil is how we deal with suffering. He said, I know that I have AIDS and I will probably die of it, but I also know that many beautiful things will come because of this epidemic. And that's when you really begin to look at life and say, what is it about? Why is there suffering? Why are there pain? Exactly. You know, and that it isn't unfair. I hope all your listeners will understand that. Everybody's complaining, so it must be fair. You see, <laughs> where we've all got troubles. But learn how to deal with them. See, that's where you get back to your grandparents and my parents. And what did they teach us? How to deal with difficulties. 
So life seems easier. And to look at it as a gift of growth. Yeah, and, and there are people who will say, and this is about cancer, AIDS, and mobile sclerosis, and everything else, my disease was a gift. And what they mean by that is nothing to do with being happy, you know, about right. being sick, right. but it was such a wonderful teacher that I literally consider my disease as a gift because of what it taught me and how I grew. And see, and th- there you can play with metaphors. Um, as one Jungian therapist said, if you don't respond by growth, you know, as a human being, you may respond to the growth inside of you. And so I do think, and this is not to, again, create guilt, but that it's not a coincidence, you see, when we get sick and the types of diseases we have, they relate to our personalities, they relate to days of the week, they relate to what's going on in our life. They collect yeah. our experiences. Yeah, I mean, our bodies collect them. That's right. Your life is stored up in you, and I mean that literally. And right. we're finding some fascinating things now because I say to people, look, if your life is stored up in you, what happens when I take your organ and put it in somebody else? Mm. And we are finding that there are people who know who the person is whose organ was put in them, as well as color, religion. I mean, I hear fascinating stories because people aren't afraid to talk to me. They right. know they're not going to be called crazy or, you know, bizarre. And they just come up to you and tell you these things. And they are incredible stories, as well as through dreams. The body gives you a diagnosis uh, symbolically. And many of these are being put in books that people are writing today about their own experience. And you utilize art and music in your healing process. What do you find through the art? Well, first let me, on a simple level about music, things that hearing is one of the senses that really doesn't go away when you're sleeping in coma or under anesthesia. So I would talk to people, play music in an operating room, and literally have their body respond even during surgery in terms of things like heart rate, bleeding, mm-hmm. and when they'd wake up, fewer complications and discomfort. The other side, the art, was very impressive to me. I am an artist, and so it was natural for me to want to do this. On one level, you can say to somebody, draw yourself having a bone marrow transplant, mm-hmm. and you get a gorgeous picture with God's hand and the doctor and the family and all the colors, and then you draw somebody else does the same treatment, and it's horrendous. Maybe they'll use a black crayon with nobody touching near them, look like they're in a prison cell. <laughs> the response to that treatment will vary with those two people, and studies are showing that now in terms of survival. So I would say to people, you know, grow yourself in the operating room, and then we'd look at the picture. And if it was an awful picture, I'd say, wait a minute, maybe you shouldn't have this, or maybe we need a new surgeon, or talk to the anesthesiologist, feel safe, feel people caring for you. So we would change that, and then we would have better results. And then would their drawings change? Oh, yes. Well, if you change them, their drawings change. Right. Um, and so we'd get into things like drawing your treatment, your immune system, even your home and family, yourself at work, um, to help them, you know, at an intuitive level, at the deeper level, not just the intellectual level, know what was going on inside of them. As a clinician... Oh, and let me say this. Yes. That was not new. I didn't invent it. I mean... See, I began to work with it because I learned about it. Right. And then I started writing to people saying, look what I've discovered. And they wrote back saying, you didn't discover anything. We know all this. That's when I got mad at medical education. It was like, you know, hey, why did they tell me that in medical school? Uh, In the early 30s, Carl Jung listened to a dream, made a physical diagnosis. They still don't say that in medical school. Mm -hmm. 
when I was a Sunday school teacher, and I, I taught Sunday school for 25 years, and I did a lot of work with music and art, and, and, and there was a family of children. I was teaching in Brookline, Mass., and there was a family of children. Every time they would draw pictures of people, they would draw circles of color around, around the people. And, of course, I had a sense of what they were doing. I felt that they were intuitive and they could sense that auric field around them. And then one day, one of the little boys, who was about eight years old, we we had talked about a Bible story, and I would have them write, draw pictures of them or act them out. And he drew a picture, and he had big black lines of colors around the person. And I looked at the picture, and I said, He's very sad, isn't he? And the little boy just looked at me and gave me this big grin, as if to say, you understand. Right. And most teachers understand. And the, the difficulty is you call the parents in, and they don't want to, you know, talk about it. That's why, because when I go into schools, I say, draw your home and family. And you right. see these stick figures, everybody mm. closed in little circles, you know, not touching. And it's painful to look at these pictures that kids are drawing. They're the sickest group of human beings today, are today's children, in terms of their self-esteem, self-worth. It's very painful because they are the most vulnerable, and they are the most vulnerable to, we hear about more physical abuse, sexual abuse. See, what, what the children and the adults of today need to know is you need to be able to commit suicide without hurting yourself. And the kids always say to me, how do I commit suicide if I don't do anything to my body? And I say, I'll tell you what you do. Why don't you take the parts of your life you don't like and kill them, mm. not yourself? And that's what most of us need to understand and learn. If you don't like your life, change it. Don't kill yourself to get out of it. Kill your the old life. It's a biblical line. You see that it's not new. Right. Um, we need to give them all water pistols. See, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who's willing to lose his life will save it. Say, well, what are they talking about? And what you need to lose is the untrue you. See, I want you to be a lawyer. <laughs> and then you get cancer. You say to your folks, hey, folks, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I'm playing a violin. You know, I'm opening a restaurant. <laughs> Whatever it is, I don't care what you want. Say, I'm going to be dead in a year, so I want to have my year. And then a year later, of course, you come in and they're not dead. So you've just answered part of the question I was going to ask you about emotion affecting the immune system. Well, you know, I always say, look at Monday morning. Why do more people get sick, have heart attacks, commit suicide on Monday? I mean, if you don't think your feelings about your life have anything to do with your survival, then I'd say stop and think about it. Yes, your emotions affect your immune system. We can show you that anticipating joy improves your immune system. I mean, these studies have been done various mm -hmm. colleges, you know, where you tell students they're going to see a funny movie. We can show you studies done in New York that if you anticipate chemotherapy, you have bone marrow suppression, and all you're doing is getting in your car on the way to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people now, and I think the real key to change is a very simple one. You have to behave as if and act as if you're the person you want to be. Now, when I say the solution is simple, that's the advice changing is so each of us each day has to act like the human being we want to become and then we will become that and you need 
uh, well, why you like me, you know, and what I've written. See, I'm your, your coach. I'm your director. So while you're working on changing, you come across my work and you say, ooh, he's a help. See, not that I did it for you, because that would be the wrong thing. I'd absolutely criticize you for giving me credit. But here came a nice coach. So if you're an athlete or an actor or an actress, you say, let me find the best coach, let me find the best directors, and let them help me change. And that's what I would say to people. And forgive yourself when you, you know, do a lousy job, drop the ball or don't fulfill your part that day. Just start again and keep working at it, and you will ultimately change. Hmm. My guest today is Dr. Bernie Siegel, author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles, Peace, Love, and Healing, and How to Live Between Office Visits, and a real mensch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, you know, let me jump back then, because I always say I have three questions to ask people. Yes. Um, to know if they've had a major loss or life-threatening illness. And it really works, and they're very simple. I say, what do you want for dinner? If they don't answer within five or ten seconds, I say, well, you haven't had a major loss. They say, what what do you know from that? I said, well, if you don't answer, you're not in touch with your feelings. Mm -hmm. If you've had a major loss in your life, you know about feelings. And when I say, what do you want for dinner, you shout at me what you want. (laughs) You know, you're not worried about cost, what I like. Uh, You know, you just say, this is what I want, and kids will respond that way. Second question is, if you could hold something up to enlighten the world on the beauty and meaning of the world um, and life, what would you hold up? Now, when you work through things like flower and baby, yep, 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 yep. But when somebody says, hold up a mirror or hold me up, Mm -hmm. that is an incredible step that they've taken. Because really, think about it. Um, You say, hold the baby up, and I pick you up in front of an audience, and I'm not, (laughs) you know, complaining or criticizing you because I think you're beautiful, but I would hold you up. Nobody applauds and goes, ah, but hold the baby up. They do. Why, why, why do we lose that magnificence? Um, why can't we look at ourselves the same way as we look at that baby? And third, uh, how do you introduce yourself to God? And when people go through, you know, mother of, um, doctor, plumber, lawyer, I say, hold it. Come back when you know who you are. But if they just say, hey, it's me. It's Bernie. It's Cindy. Um, I don't need an introduction. God knows me. Uh, or one boy I loved said, tell God his replacement is here. <laughs> I mean, those are the answers, you see, that say you realize you are a divine creature. Nothing to do with perfection. God does not ask perfection of anyone. If you don't believe me, read the Bible. Um, but that you are, you know, God's child. And often it takes a major disaster for people to awaken to their own beauty and significance and spirituality. And acceptance. Yeah, self-acceptance. I hear people say, I didn't want to die hating myself, Mm. so I learned to love myself, and in the process, I got well. The roles of love and faith in the healing process. Mm. Well, I'd say there are two things. You mentioned a water gun earlier, and I should emphasize that. I'd say that let the serenity prayer be your approach to difficulties in life, that it is very appropriate to express anger when you're not treated with respect or properly, particularly in a hospital setting. You know, if you're the disease, the room number, and I don't have to tell you what's been in the papers. You know, I'm operating on the wrong parts of the body, killing people with too much treatment, not getting enough treatment. Sending them home after a day. Yeah, and you have to speak up and say, hey, this is me. I'm a human being. 
um, and you need to treat me as a human being. And that's where the water gun comes in. You don't get treated with respect, shoot people. <laughs> but the water gun says, I want respect, doesn't hurt anybody. That's right. anger. See, that's not resentment, hatred, and a bomb in the hospital. That's speaking up at the appropriate time. The other is the faith aspect, that if you don't want to fight and expend your energy, then say, God, this is your problem. And I've seen people cured both ways, uh, meaning some who are fighters. And this we can show you statistically. The fighters do better. The doers do better. You know, the ones who buy the books, listen to the tapes, and change. And the spiritual people do better. And I always say, don't just be one of them. You know, there's no reason you can't speak up if you don't like waiting in a doctor's office or say, God, you want me here for another hour? I'll wait. Who knows who'll walk in the door? And in the meantime, read about, you know, Love, Medicine, and Miracles or listen to a tape and, and participate. Um, somebody, a physician, said, we need a new term for patient because the word patient means a submissive sufferer. Mm. And I wrote him, I said, if you'd read my books, you'd find several years ago I made up a new word. It was called a respite, a responsible participant. Mm. And that's what we need to be. But again, the, the faith, see, doesn't mean you're not doing something. You're letting go. And that faith is really important so that you're not constantly judging. Um, William Saroyan wrote a wonderful story where a young man is told, uh, all you have to do is believe. He said, believe in what? He said, everything, up, down, right, wrong, left, right. And that's what you begin to see, that when you stop judging, see, that's where the faith comes in, um, you know, that you get on what I call the universe's schedule. And it's amazing the coincidences, who you meet, you know, the article you pick up. When you go into a hotel room, turn on the television, it's like, hey, there's Bernie Siegel. Or you walk in a bookstore and a book falls off the shelf and right. that's what you're supposed to read. Right, exactly. You know, that kind of thing. And you right. say, who's doing this? Right. And my sense is that, that that's how I try to live. And when I get out of that phase, I really work hard at getting back into it. Something happens yeah, to almost force us to get back into I'm it. I'm writing another book. God and I are writing another book. Yes. And one of the things I began to understand, because I used to think that if you're going to hear God's voice, and whatever you, that means to you, you know, right. the inner voice, God, right. intuition, unconscious, but it has to be quiet, get back to nature. And I think for most people that's true. But then I came across something that Norman Vincent Peale had written about a man who worked in a factory. Because I'm always saying, if you live in New York City, how can you... And then I came across Walt Whitman's poem, where he said, it's called, uh, Give Me This Silent Sun. Um, and uh, give me again, O oh nature, your primal sanities, and it's wonderful. And then the second half of the poem says that he would prefer being in Manhattan. Give me the city, the faces, the eyes. And I said, wait a minute, how can this guy be creative in Manhattan? Um, and, and Norma Vincent Peale was talking about this man who runs a factory and the workers who get into the rhythm. And mm. I thought, that's the secret, see, the rhythm, so that you could live in New York if you're in rhythm. I find it very hard to be in rhythm in New York. It takes me two or three days, if you <laughs> take me there, to get into the city rhythm, because I'm used to nature. And I find all the sounds disturbing. But I think it's who, who, wherever a person feels a connectedness right. or a part of or a part of a community. Yeah, right. That's where you can be healthy. So there can be people healthy in New York or out in nature. They're in rhythm with life. And that's what I would say to everybody again, you see, get into the rhythm, live your life, behave as if, whatever, however way you want to put it. But if you're not in rhythm, you're going to end up sick. 
After we talk, uh, I'm going to tell the audience uh, where you are going to be in New England. Uh, I know you're going to be uh, doing a program for the Hope Center in Newport coming up, which I will tell them about, and uh, and also the um, the Interface Conference, mm-hmm. Body and Soul, in Boston, which a- looks absolutely wonderful. Yes, it's a great group of people, not just me, but... And you'll be doing a workshop with Dr. Brian Weiss. Yeah, well, I'll be doing some alone, mm-hmm. and then you talk, you know, like panel things right. with other people, so... There are many individuals who will be there. Just wonderful to hear. Well, I, I do hope to see you there. All right. I want to just f- finalize our conversation by just asking you, years and years and years from now, when people mention the name Dr. Bernie Siegel, how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> As a nice person. A meant well. That would be okay with well, you are a nice person, and you are a mensch. Thank you. And I thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to meeting you in person. <laughs> and I wish you muzzle tough with your new grandchildren. Thanks, Cindy. <laughs> and as my grandmother said to me all through my childhood, God is mit dir, which right. means God is with you. Right. And you see how that affects you as you grow up. Absolutely. And Life is full of troubles. If something good happens, it's followed by something bad. I mean, these are quotes from people. And they wait for disaster. So I wish everybody would have the... That's what I always felt. If the world had my parents, it'd be a nicer place. Or your grandparents, you know, it would be an easier world. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.